Brothers and sisters, we continue forward in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23, and we've come now to the crucifixion. Let us stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from verse 24 through to verse 49. You'll see in your sermon notes there, the focus verses will be verse 32 through 43. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me. In paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, 
beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. So as you know, in the Old Testament, God gave some of his prophets messages about the future. And some of those divinely inspired messages about the future were about Jesus Christ. And some of those messages about Christ were focused upon his crucifixion. Listen to the words of Isaiah in chapter 53, written about 750 years before our Lord was crucified on that spring day in the morning, A.D. 30, outside the walls of Jerusalem. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Stripes there, that's his wounds. By his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet... It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So God, in his mighty power, gave this prophetic vision. To Isaiah, all those centuries before Jesus was born. And I want you to see in verse 12 there that the Father states that Christ will be exalted. 
that phrase, divide him a portion with, with the great. That Christ will be exalted after his humiliation. And his humiliation is described to us here in Isaiah chapter 53 in, in four ways. He poured out his own soul to death upon the cross. So Jesus Christ offered himself up voluntarily as the perfect Lamb of God. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Another way that Jesus Christ demonstrated this humiliation. And Luke 23 emphasizes this, as we will see. Next, he bore the sin of many. He bore the sin of his people. And next, he made intercession for the transgressors. And he still makes intercession now before God the Father on our behalf. Today, we're going to be focusing in on this concept of being numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified between two criminals. So as we listen to Luke's description of the crucifixion, we'll focus our attention upon the two criminals today, seeking to observe Christ's suffering and death from their perspectives. What was it like for them to observe this so closely? They watched Jesus, perhaps the closest vantage point of all, even experiencing crucifixion almost essentially simultaneously with Jesus Christ. How did they each respond to all of this? It appears as though they both saw the same thing and experienced the same thing. Why did each man respond so differently? What if you had carried a cross that spring morning on the road with Jesus? What if you had been nailed to a cross beam that day with him? Hung up and stretched out in agony alongside him that morning. Consider that. Would you have blasphemed or would you have believed? So the title is Crucified Between Two Criminals. And we're basically just going to walk through this text together moment by moment for these criminals. Looking at each moment, attempting to place ourselves in their shoes. And ask ourselves questions along the way. We'll first look at a little bit of background about being numbered with the transgressors. So let's get started. In Isaiah 53.12, we've already heard the prophecy that Jesus Christ would be numbered with the transgressors. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus has emphasized this to his disciples just the night before, at the close of the Last Supper. In chapter 23 at verse 37, towards the end of the Last Supper is given to us by Luke. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So Christ chooses from this particular section of Isaiah 53. Emphasizing being associated with, numbered with, counted as a criminal. So part of Christ's humility his submission to his father was to voluntarily allow himself to be numbered with the transgressors. 
People considered him as a malefactor and a criminal on that day. So when the general masses looked at him, they saw him as a humiliated, shameful criminal, and they wanted nothing to do with him. Luke 23 emphasizes this along the way. They all cried out at once. This is starting at verse 18. They all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. So there's a a third criminal that's a part of this story, Barabbas. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So, Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. So Christ was not only numbered with the transgressors, he was despised as worse than a murderous traitor. In many ways, perhaps he was seen as the captain of all transgressors at this time. So in the eyes of those people on that day, he was the worst imaginable criminal, thrown away like trash in exchange for a man like Barabbas. So, Here they are, these two criminals, and they walk this path with Jesus. The text tells us there were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. So they saw these things right there with him. Not just the crucifixion, but the path to the crucifixion. So let's recall what has already occurred on this road to death. What have these criminals already observed up to this point? Remember, they were here. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? So Jesus has been scourged, and at some point he's become too weak to carry his own crossbeam. We know he was carrying it for a time, and then he wasn't carrying it. So Simon, a man from Cyrene, which is the region known today around Libya, he is conscripted to carry Christ's cross for him. The criminals are surrounded by a great multitude on this road. Not to watch them die. Not really interested in the criminals, it doesn't seem. But because of Jesus. The great multitude is there because of Jesus. And they're seeing this along the way. Similarly, the women have mourned Jesus' plight, but apparently have not mourned over the two criminals. So they're watching all this. They're seeing the attention Jesus is getting. They're listening to the exchange between Christ and these women. They're, they're hearing him teach these women this hard-to-understand message that we looked at last week, warning these women about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the terrible suffering 
that that generation would experience. In addition, because of what the believing criminal says later, it appears these two malefactors knew enough of Christ's trial before Pilate to know that Jesus was innocent. From Pilate's perspective, they had heard that he found no reason to crucify Jesus. So they've seen enough, they know enough, and they're watching this unfold along the road, and then they come to the place called Calvary. And there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Our Lord was crucified between two criminals. Upon arrival at the place of crucifixion, these three men were nailed to their crossbeams and lifted up onto the pre-positioned vertical poles. Jesus was placed in the middle of these two criminals. Jesus and the two criminals may have been completely naked, or they may have had on loincloths. It's not certain. Roman history shows the crucifixion victim was almost always naked, except if requested by local custom. It's possible the Jews would have requested a loincloth. The answer to this question is uncertain. Either way, imagine the humiliation of our Lord. Two criminals are there with him, experiencing this same humiliation and pain. A Dr. Terasaka has written a, a medical examination of the crucifixion. And it's much longer than what I'll quote. And it goes through the types of physical and emotional suffering Jesus would have likely experienced throughout the process of his trial and his beatings, the crown of thorns, the mockings, and the walk with the 100-pound beam on his back, the falling with the beam, the bleeding, the bruising, and the suffering that he would have already experienced by the time he got to be crucified. But about the crucifixion, it may be summarized as follows. The patibulum was put on the ground and the victim laid upon it. So the patibulum is the cross beam. The patibulum is the cross beam. Nails about seven inches long and with a diameter of one centimeter, about three-eighths of an inch, were driven into the wrists. The points would go into the vicinity of the median nerve, causing shocks of pain to radiate through the arms. It was possible to place the nails between the bones so that no fractures or broken bones would occur. Studies have shown that nails were probably driven through the small bones of the wrist since nails in the palms of the hand would not support the weight of a body. And in ancient terminology, the wrist was considered to be part of the hand. Standing at the crucifixion sites would be the upright posts called the stipes, standing about seven feet high. And in the center of the stipes was a crude seat called a sedili or sedulum, which served as a bit of a support for the victim. The patibulum was then lifted onto the stipes. The feet were then nailed to the stipes. To allow for this, the knees had to be bent and rotated laterally, being left in a very uncomfortable position. The titulus was hung above the victim's head, and that's the description of the crime. So it was common to have a tablet with the crime written on it, posted above the criminal's head. 
Was Jesus nailed to the cross? Do we have any biblical evidence that he was nailed to the cross? We ask this because there are some times when the crucifixion would occur through tying the criminal to the cross. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus was nailed to the cross. John chapter 20, this is after the resurrection. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. So Jesus was nailed to the cross, at least his hands were nailed to the cross. We don't have any direct biblical evidence regarding his feet being nailed to the cross. So at this point, they've been crucified. What happens next? What's reported to us next? Jesus speaks these words. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And it's worth emphasizing how difficult every single breath was. When folks were crucified, in general, death came through suffocation because the muscles eventually were too weak to lift the body and the diaphragm was no longer strong enough to work against the resistance of the weight of the body. And so once that occurred, they experienced those terrible moments of having no breath until they became unconscious. So every single word was an extreme challenge. And Jesus uses his breath to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So in the midst of this most intense, approximately six hours of suffering on the cross, we know from Mark that the crucifixion began around 9 a.m. It's called the third hour, which in Mark is measured from 6 a.m. according to the Hebrew time frame. So that means around 9 a.m., what we would call 9 a.m. And then it ended around 3 p.m., around the ninth hour, we're told in Luke 23, verse 44, is around the ninth hour. So in the midst of this six-hour-long time of suffering, probably somewhere towards the beginning, Jesus says these words. And he asks his Father in heaven to forgive these people who are doing this horrible thing to him. So you're one of the criminals. You're there, crucified beside Jesus, one on the left and one on the right, and you hear these astonishing words. Think of being there, and think of the treatment that you're receiving. 
and that he's receiving. And he asks for them to be forgiven. You must see that the natural human response is to fling curses with your last breath and to call down God's curses upon people in your last breath. Not Jesus. What exactly did Jesus mean by this astonishing request? We're not going to go into all of it today. We're going to look at it in a future sermon about forgiveness. But for now, we can say without question that Jesus our Lord was demonstrating divine mercy and compassion in the midst of the most wicked mistreatment a man has ever experienced. So that's important. These two criminals observed this event. They saw a man demonstrate divine mercy and compassion in the midst of this terrible mistreatment. They witnessed this. They heard the tone in his voice. They knew the compassion and the tenderness of Jesus Christ. His garments were then divided by lots. They divided his garments and cast lots. It's a brief statement given to us by Luke. Bach says that gambling for clothes is customary at crucifixion and is the final humiliation one suffers upon execution. One dies in shame and largely unclothed. So this points to Christ's humiliation and being Naked or almost completely naked. And so what can we say about this? They're watching Jesus, like his garments, being treated like a, a throwaway item to be recycled and reused without any thought. Jesus and his stuff being treated like trash. And in spite of being treated this way, and here's the contrast in this one verse, He shows compassion to the very end. How would you have responded as you watched this unfold? Nailed there to a cross, dying next to Jesus. What would you have been focused upon? Would you have been focused upon yourself and your plight? Or might you have been able to be focused upon Christ and His glory and His innocence and His great kingdom? So there's this crowd looking on. Verse 35 says, And the people stood looking on. This is the same crowd from before. The same crowd that cried out for Him to be crucified. The same multitude that came along the road. The same mix of people that we've discussed before. Some would have been crying out, sneering the whole time. Others would have been there, curious, unsure. Some would have been coming along just because their friend was going. It was a mixed kind of people, this big crowd. We hear no description of anyone. One key thing about the crowd is nobody out of the crowd speaks up for Jesus. Throughout the entire set of events, the only folks that we see speaking up for Jesus up to this point are Pilate and then as we'll see, the believing criminal on the cross. The centurion has, some positive, has a very positive thing to say as well, which we'll look at in the future. And as we go on in verse 35, there's definitely a portion of this crowd that they are also sneering. So these two are hanging here with Jesus. They have in their memory His kind words 
their memory that Pilate said he was innocent. And all of these people coming alongside, no one defending him, and certainly a subset sneering. And then the rulers, the rulers continue in their mistreatment. They sneered saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. What does this word sneer mean? Well, it's to deride by turning up the nose, to scoff at something. So think of a a really bad smell when it hits your nose and the way you respond. They were totally disgusted with Jesus. The Jewish leaders were totally disgusted with the Holy Messiah God had sent to be their deliverer. We see here their continued misunderstanding of their Messiah. The apostate Jewish leaders and people did not understand that the Messiah must suffer and die. They rejected the idea of their Messiah being humiliated like this. In Luke 24, verse 46, this is the central point that Christ gives to his disciples prior to his ascension. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. You see, their rejection of Jesus Christ was based upon their unbelief, their pride, and their ignorance of God's Word. It's not just that they didn't understand God's Word. They didn't want to understand God's Word. They didn't want to believe the multitude of proofs that Jesus Christ gave to them throughout His public ministry, that He had fulfilled all of the prophecies regarding the Messiah. And the criminals, they probably heard this sneering. They continue to see Christ receive this mocking in the midst of all the pain. But then it goes on. The soldiers join in. The soldiers also mocked Him, coming and offering Him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. You see, this is the theme that comes up. We see it with the rulers. We see it with the soldiers. We see it with the the blaspheming criminal. See, the Messiah would use his power to deliver himself. First, he would deliver himself and then deliver the Jews. Always on top. Always looking out for himself. Always using his power for himself. And for the glory of Israel. No Messiah would ever be so humiliated. Like Jesus was humiliated. And the soldiers join into this. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And of course from the Roman perspective, there's this added mocking towards the general idea the Jews had of a redeemer, of a Messiah in the first place. They're laughing at him. They're mocking his claim to be the king of Jews. They're mocking the Jewish belief in general. And again, save yourself. This is the human response to suffering. Of course, if you're some powerful king, you're just going to save yourself. And isn't that often how Christianity is presented? As a selfish attempt to just be saved. We praise God for our salvation, do we not, brothers and sisters? But man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. 
Salvation is about knowing God and being brought back into friendship with Him. See, humanity demands self-salvation, not self-sacrifice. And Jesus brings us salvation through His self-sacrifice. So all along, the criminals are being offered this path of the world, screaming the loudest from the people to the Jewish leaders to the Roman soldiers and even Pilate got on board as well as we can see from the inscription. Verse 38, an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Now, while it seems as though Pilate may not have been primarily mocking Christ, but mocking the Jews who had wrongly brought him on this charge. Nevertheless, it serves as a kind of mocking of Christ as well. It's his final gesture of Pilate. And as we've said already, it was common for the criminal to have such a tablet inscribed to define their crime for all to see. And so, so Pilate puts that up there. But as we see in the Gospel of John, the Jews are like, no, don't do that. And he says, I've written what I've written. So now comes the blaspheming criminal. And in the blaspheming criminal, brothers and sisters, we have a picture, each one of us, of our own souls. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And so this man's sin is greater in some regard than the sins that have already occurred, called blaspheming. If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Brothers and sisters, this is always the response of unbelief. The heart that does not trust in Christ will always have this same response to weakness, to suffering, to sacrifice, to overcoming evil with good. Our, our fallen flesh will always have this same response. Angry with God, this man on the cross is angry with God for his own suffering. That's all he can see. He's looking at his own suffering. This blaspheming man joins him in the chorus of mockery towards Jesus Christ as he himself is being justly crucified. Instead of reflecting upon his own soul and his own crime, he rails on Jesus Christ and heaps up more judgment upon his soul. Right there, next to the suffering Savior, the glorious Christ on the cross. This is how wicked we are, brothers and sisters. We can be right there observing Jesus Christ and reject Him and blaspheme Him. This is a picture for each of us to see from where we have been saved. Apart from Christ's grace in our life, we would hang there and blaspheme Jesus Christ as well. It's a picture of the flesh within us each day. The flesh, we cannot have a negotiation meeting with our flesh. It will be the same every time. It must be crucified. But there is a believing criminal. And I hope that you would see through today's message a call from God to be like the believing criminal. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So, this man has also been crucified, just like the other criminal. This man has been through a trial and been found guilty of a crime worthy of death also. But he has a different response. This man is different. Do you see the difference? One man is nasty towards Jesus. And he speaks ugly, angry, condemning words towards Jesus. You don't save me right now? I don't want anything to do with you. You see the self-focus? But not this man. This man is focused upon Jesus Christ. In the midst of his own suffering and his very soon death, he is focused upon Christ. In the midst of what perhaps might be the greatest possible suffering, maybe, that a human could go through, the crucifixion, this person, this man, is granted faith to not think of his own suffering, to not look at himself first, but to look to Jesus. And this look to Jesus, he sees him for who he is. You know, we see in the Old Testament the serpent being lifted up. And you look to the serpent and you're saved. And Jesus quotes this in John 3. If we look to him, we see him for who he is, we are saved. Well, this man was granted that great grace on the cross that day. He saw Christ. Maybe not perfectly, but enough to know that Jesus Christ was unlike anyone else. So he defends Jesus by correcting the blasphemer. Something happened in him to where he needed and wanted to reject everything the world was saying about Jesus Christ. God had given him faith to see that these were lies. And so he corrects the blasphemer. He says, do you not even fear God? He says he rebuked him. Do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation. And I think it's worth noting how many words this man spoke. Every breath precious. Do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? Here's a voice speaking up for Jesus Christ. He confesses his sin. He says, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. So when the Lord Jesus Christ is brought before our eyes in His holiness and in His perfection, we are also given an accurate picture of our own sin. This is important. This is a part of being a Christian. A very important part is that God gives you an ever-increasingly accurate view of your own sinfulness and of the justice that you have earned from God. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. And the Holy Spirit of God gave this man on the cross that understanding of his own sin. Not in some academic fashion, but in a very real way that he saw that he deserved to be there on that cross. That he was receiving justice. He was receiving what it was good for him to receive. 
It's nothing academic. It's very personal. And he again confesses Christ's innocence, but this man has done nothing wrong. And that's always a part of salvation, brothers and sisters, is an increasingly um, joyful view of Jesus Christ. His eyes blazing, his perfections in heaven, and his Holy Spirit being poured out in our hearts to see him and to know him and to love him more. This man has done nothing wrong. Isn't that always the cry of the soul towards Jesus Christ? It always starts there. But it, it ends with more things like he is worthy to receive all honor and power and glory and justice and dominion. And we praise him. And he just looks to Jesus. And this is where the brokenness comes in. This man knows he can't save himself. And he knows that being saved from that cross, from that moment, isn't really what it's all about. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He asks for Jesus to remember him when Jesus comes into his kingdom. This man sees Jesus as the king of the Jews. This man has some kind of understanding that the Messiah must suffer and die. This man has some kind of understanding that Jesus Christ's life is not over on this cross. This man sees Jesus Christ as the one who would suffer and die and be raised up. And he says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, it is a worthwhile thing and a good eminently reasonable choice to trust in the memory of Jesus Christ for his elect, for his people. He will remember you. He remembered this man. It appears the first amongst the new covenant elect to be saved. And he will remember your name. Have you asked him to remember you? Have you trusted in him like this to forgive you of your sins? Have you looked to Jesus as your Savior who has died on the cross for you and trusted in Him? But you see, it's even more. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man understands that there's a kingdom involved here. Brothers and sisters, you and I have been called into this kingdom together. We are living in the outpouring of Christ's kingdom in the kingdom age. He is remembering us, his people, now that he has come into his kingdom. And he will never forget us. He will never leave us or forsake us. He knows that we, like him, will be thrown away like trash. But he will never see us in such a fashion. His love is an everlasting love. Psalm 136, right? How many times did I say it at the beginning? Because like, is he going to keep saying that? Yeah. I think the idea is forever and ever we're going to be praising God because his covenant mercy endures forever. 
And it is in every moment. It is through every moment. From the beginning of Israel to the end of their deliverance. From the beginning of our lives. From the beginning of His church to the end of His church. It's His covenant mercy towards us forever and ever. He has cleansed us. Because Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This man is given salvation upon the cross. The believing criminal. Towards the end of Jesus' life, and he uses again his failing breath to speak salvation to this repentant criminal. Even to the very end, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Does Jesus have any kind of weak breath right now? And is he breathing his Holy Spirit upon his church right now? Have you asked God to pour out his Holy Spirit upon you? He delights to do this. It started with this man. It continues from then until now and until the end of time. Jesus, bringing his saints into paradise with him, remembering us in his kingdom day after day in this church age. So some questions for you. Um, I want to take us back into the sovereign grace of God in our salvation. Because I believe that is the fountain of gratitude and rejoicing. Because if there's even the tiniest bit of you that thinks that there's something about you that would have naturally differentiated you from one of these two criminals, then you won't know the gratitude and the joy of salvation that is available. So listen to Ephesians chapter 2. The question is, what distinguished these two criminals from one another? And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, verses 1 through 10, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So, we were dead. Were both of these criminals dead in their trespasses on the cross? Yes, they were. And were they by nature children of wrath, both of them on the cross? Yes, they were. This was true of both of those criminals. And they had been carried along, as you see here, carried along by the forces of darkness in the course of their lives. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus dead in trespasses both of these criminals neither of them able to see or enter the kingdom of God. Even if they could have seen it, they wouldn't have had the ability to enter it. Both of them. 
So what distinguished them? God reached into the soul of the believing criminal and gave him faith. He was dead in his trespasses. He was by nature a child of wrath. But God loved him as a part of his elect. Even when he was dead there on the cross. Who knows when it happened? Who knows which moment it was? When God gave him faith in Jesus Christ. Raised him up. And we with him. Are you looking forward to meeting this gentleman? I'm looking forward to meeting him. It's going to be a, an enjoyable conversation. And raised us up together. All of us here who trust in Christ. And this criminal on the cross. Raised us up together. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what has happened is. God in his kindness. Not because of anything about the criminal. Or about you and me. Bestowed his grace upon you. So the only thing that distinguishes. The believer. From the blasphemer. Is the sovereign grace. Well, that's not fair. Oh, you don't want justice. You do not want justice. If you are sitting here today and you trust in Jesus Christ, it is because and only because God first loved you. Now, what does this mean? It means that He who chose us holds us. And the faith that we have towards Him that He gives to us holds on to Him, but it's a faith that comes from Him and He keeps giving it to us. And He will never leave us or forsake us. Even when we're faithless, He's faithful. And no one, nothing can take us out of His hands. The rejoicing and the gratitude that is ours flow from the knowledge of the sovereign grace of God. God did not look down the halls of time and find those who would trust in Him and then give them faith. That is not how it worked. This may be what you've heard before. In some doctrinal systems, salvation, the only thing that distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever is that some make a choice. And they have the ability, all of us have the ability in this system to make that choice on our own. But biblical human anthropology teaches us a much deeper and more corrosive impact of sin upon our minds and our hearts. That we cannot see the kingdom. We cannot enter the kingdom unless we are first born again from above. So, brothers and sisters, rejoice in God's Son. I think the criminal, the believing criminal on the cross would, would have us to rejoice in God's sovereign grace. Next, have you considered Christ's humility to be numbered with the transgressors? Have you considered the humiliation associated with being seen as such a criminal? The worst of criminals. Think of Jesus in his submission to his father. 
Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Was Jesus a sinner? No. He was the world's only perfect man. Was he humble? Yes. Is humility, therefore, necessary for perfect creatures to best display God's glory? Yes. Jesus demonstrates to us what Andrew Murray talks about as the humility of being a creature. There's, three other, there's two other types, types of humility that he talks about. But this second form of humility, I agree with uh, Andrew Murray, deserves more attention. So I commend to you his book. I'm working my way through it on humility. Um, the beauty of holiness. I'm going to read to you a section from that. And uh, I hope you'll listen carefully. It's kind of a long quote. Andrew Murray says, Hence it follows that nothing can be our redemption but the restoration of the lost humility, the original and only true relation of the creature to its God. And so Jesus came to bring humility back to earth to make us partakers of it and by it to save us. In heaven, he humbled himself to become man. The humility we see in him possessed him in heaven. It brought him, he brought it from there. Here on earth, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. His humility gave his death its value, and so became our redemption. And now the salvation he imparts is nothing less and nothing else than a communication of his own life and death his own disposition of spirit, his own humility as the ground and root of his relation to God and his redeeming work. Jesus Christ took the place and fulfilled the destiny of man as a creature by his life of perfect humility. His humility is our salvation. His salvation is our humility. And so the life of the saved ones, of the saints, must needs bear this stamp of deliverance from sin and full restoration to their original state, their whole relation to God and man marked by an all-pervading humility. Without this, there can be no true abiding in God's presence or experience of His favor and the power of His Spirit. Without this, no abiding faith or love or joy or strength. Humility is the only soil in which the graces root the lack of humility is the sufficient explanation of every defect and failure. Humility is not so much a grace or a virtue along with others. It is the root of all because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows Him as God to do all. The Scriptures describe this to us in Philippians chapter 2, other places, but it's such a clear description of Christ's humility held out for us. Verses 1 through 13. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. 
Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Oh, the great humility of Jesus Christ our Lord. May it be true of us more and more each day as well. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice to receive the blessing of once again hearing your word, meditating upon Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, considering your great work in the hearts of your people, granting us faith to see Jesus Christ, to confess our sins, and to cry out to you for your salvation in Christ, blessing us with more of Jesus and less of ourselves, that he must increase and we must decrease. Oh, Father, we rejoice that you are working in us all that is pleasing to you. And we submit ourselves to you for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name.